You know what's the worst? It's flat out the worst. Living in conflict with someone. You guys know that, right? Through personal experience. It is not fun when you wake up knowing there's tension between you and someone you care about. And we could make light of that. Ha, 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 it's the worst. But we also realize, no, it's the worst. It is the worst. When we're in conflict with someone or feeling animosity for them or from them, how, do you, how does that feel for you? I'd, I'd be interested. Would you shout out, how does that feel for you? How do you tend to live when you're in conflict with someone? How do you feel? Anxious? Unsettled? Physically? Yep, physically tense. What? Closed? Overwhelmed? Burdened, angry, sad. I know for my heart, I get really avoidant. I, I withdraw. I kind of put up some walls and like go into roommate mode if it's with my wife or go into like some like nice, comfortable distance if it's someone in my family. I become very fearful. Often I get critical of that person. I kind of withdraw into judgment of the other person to like kind of like put some guards around myself. I can get very self-righteous. Now, one more question. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What about when you want to reconcile with someone, but you don't know how, or you do not have the ability to reconcile with them? How do you feel? Helpless. Timid. I want to, but I just don't know how. Nervous. Very scared. Is, are we going to be okay? I don't know how to make this better. What's going to happen? I know for me, right, I feel really hopeless. Often I retreat farther into my anger, farther into my self-righteousness. And all of this leads me to giving up. It leads me to depression. It leads me to writing the person off entirely. It leads me to apathy as a safer place than pain. Now, changing the tone a little bit. How does it feel when you know the path to reconciliation? You know how to get there and you know the outcome will be this person loves you and they will receive you well. How does that feel? Confident. Relieving. Safe. I can see your faces. You guys literally just like your shoulders just relaxed and many of you are now smiling. Keep going. How does that feel when you know you can be reconciled? You know how to do it and you know the end is love and safety and relationship. How do you feel? Joy? Security? I often feel humble. I feel excited. I'm so excited to move out of the pain, out of the tension. I'm excited to get back to the way it should be. I feel courageous. Okay, this is going to hurt, but I know how to do it. This is going to hurt, but I, I know I can go into this conversation because I trust you at the end. Now, one more question. How does it feel after you've been reconciled, after you've moved through the pain and you are now living in relational peace and trust with someone? How does that feel? Calming. Freedom. You feel connected, intimate. Anything else? 
I know for me, physically, emotionally, I feel settled. I feel at home with this person. I feel at ease with my own self in their presence, that the physical tension's gone. I, and then interestingly, I actually feel more generous to that person. I feel more invested in the relationship even, coming out on the other side. And oftentimes I feel pursued because the other person has met me or pursued me to bring that reconciliation possible. So this is the gift of the gospel. This is the gift of the gospel, that we do not have to live life at all in conflict with God. Waking up in the morning, are we okay, God? And we don't have to live life wondering, am I okay, God? God, are you going to be there? What are you going to do next? The good news message of Jesus is that we, notice this, were 100% inarguably in conflict with God. There's not a single human being who's ever lived who can say, yeah, I'm not in conflict, we're good. The gospel of Jesus says everybody was and or is in conflict with God and we had no hope of fixing ourselves enough to restore that relationship. We had no hope of fixing ourselves enough to restore that relationship. But God the loving creator of everything chose to do the work of reconciliation for us. Where we couldn't, he stepped in to do the work. In love, he sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, on a rescue mission to save us, to remove the conflict, to remove the animosity, to make the path to reconciliation possible and guaranteed. And my question though, is do you still feel in conflict with God? know Jesus, heard the gospel, but sometimes I wake up just wondering, God, are we good? Now, if you feel that, I hope today is a good news message. And if you have not yet considered the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus, and you do wake up wondering, is there a God? Are we on good terms? What would it take for me to be on good terms with him? If that's you, please tune in and listen consider the message of Jesus and if it would be life-altering and life-saving. So this is the story of God and the gospel of Jesus, that we who were far off, distant, in conflict, are now brought near, were brought home, brought settled in the presence of a loving father. We who were the enemies of God in conflict are now children, adopted by him, living in the, uh, under a peaceful roof with a loving father. We who were dead in sin, who had no place to be in God's family, are now, through Christ, have died to our sin. Christ has died for us, and now we receive eternal life through the resurrected Jesus and faith in him. I'm going to read some excerpts out of Ephesians chapter 2, and if I would love for you to receive this as an invitation to hear, know, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1 through 16, some excerpts say this. And you... You were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, and you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of your works, so no one may boast. Remember, at one time you were separated from Christ. You had no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our 
peace, that he might reconcile both us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, removing, resolving, reconciling the hostility in the conflict. Today is all about the good news that Jesus has paved a way to reconciliation with God through his own sacrifice in life. This way to reconciliation is direct, it is free, and it is guaranteed. You can know the outcome from the very first step. We do not have to live another single day of our life in conflict with God, ducking his gaze, avoiding his presence, fearing his judgment, or questioning his love. We don't. This is a gift of God by grace through faith. We can somehow be 100% at peace with him. We can live in loving relationship with him even while we are weeding out sin and growing in righteousness. Even while we're weeding out sin, growing in righteousness, we can know who our father is, what our relationship is with him. There is no conflict through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ received through faith. So today is about that. We'll get to a little bit more about that. But today's also actually about more than that. It's about more than just me and God. It's more than just us and God. That was two weeks ago, right? The body of Christ. Today is also about them and God. Everyone not yet in the family of Christ, not yet redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Those who don't yet know him, who are right now living every single day of their life in conflict with God. Those who right now are far from him. Those who right now, if we believe Ephesians, are enemies of God. Dead in sin. Here's today's message, sermon title. Living for others. Subtitle, God's strategic plan to reconcile the world, to remove the conflict of the world is you. Now, as I say you, many of us probably like dodge that. Oh, it means them. It means the church. No, I actually this, wrote this very specifically. I would love for you to hear this as God's strategic plan to reconcile the world is you. Now, two asterisks here, because I think we need some explanation. One, Not everyone is aware that they are in conflict with God. Many people in the world are living seemingly content and happy lives. And many people are happily convinced that their understanding of God is totally fine or that there's no God to be in conflict with anyways. My argument to that would be, well, have you ever been pulled over when you didn't realize you'd broken the law? The law still applies. Or have you ever been pulled over when you were unaware that there was a police officer there? Your understanding of the law and awareness of the law's presence has nothing to do whether you can be tried and convicted and held to that law. We want to live for those who are unaware or reject the whole premise of God and the law. Asterisk number two, to be 100% clear, you do not reconcile the world, right? <laughs> a lot of us uh, who, who value theology immediately bristled. What, I'm the one who reconciles the world? No, not saying that. Jesus reconciles the world 100% every single day. But you are God's strategic plan. Jesus reconciles the world, but you are his strategic plan. 
And that's what the rest of today is about. So here is a roadmap of how we're going to spend the next bit of time. First, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 21. This is what we've read together uh, when Jason and Dana were up here. And I'm going to make three main points out of that body of teaching. First point, that God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Remember, Jesus does the reconciling. We're the strategic part. Part two, God has given his people and the church, which is us, the ministry of reconciliation. Point three, that therefore we are ambassadors for Christ and God makes his appeal to the world through us. That's going to be the main body of teaching. And then we're going to actually continue following Paul's train of thought a little bit farther, one more paragraph, and we're going to look at why receiving the gospel is a weighty responsibility for your sake. And then we're going to back up about one chapter into the beginning of chapter five to look at why receiving the gospel is a weighty, responsib- is a weighty responsibility for their sake. Your reception of the gospel matters for their sake. Then I'll give you guys three minutes of individual reflection. I'll come back up, give like seven minutes of like concrete application teaching through our personal discipleship plans. And then I'll give you about eight minutes of community discussion. And then we'll sing, take communion, and I will send you out as ambassadors for Christ. That's the plan. You guys ready? All right, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. My first point out of this main body is that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17 says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Christ, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So from now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. I'll explain that. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So let's walk through that. First, Paul is getting into how his motivations and his purpose of life has changed because of his new reality as reconciled to God. He doesn't have to wonder, am I in conflict? He knows He opens in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Christ has died for us. He lovingly gave himself for our sake and he was raised. And so if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. For Paul, his entire world has been turned right side up, right? Incredible change, but it's because he is no longer living his life in conflict with God or wondering if he's in conflict with God. This man has absolute security. He wakes up every single day compelled by what? The love of Christ. This man wakes up every day saturated with the love of Christ towards him. What controls me? Fear of God? Wondering, am I okay with God? No, the love of Christ. I wake up, Jesus loves me. Doesn't make sense. I don't deserve it, but he does. And this has transformed him into an entirely new kind of person. This love now controls him and moves him outward. In verse 16, it says, we regard no one according to the flesh. So let's just explain that real quick. As a Christian, Paul's saying, and he's saying that we also are in Christ. The old self has died and has arisen an entirely new person with an entirely new set of standards. Paul's saying that he does not judge anything by the standards that the world uses. 
He doesn't judge anything according to the flesh. Paul used to judge even Christ with the world standards, which is why he tried to eliminate Christianity as a Pharisee. But now, because he's been transformed into new life, he wakes up every day in reconciled relationship with God, and his standards now look different because of that. The way he views the world is different because of that. He's now looking every day through the lens of Christ's love for himself and for others. So he judges no one according to the old standards. He judges everyone according to the standards of Christ and his love. Paul, I believe it's fair to say, is single-hearted for Christ. Verse 17, Paul continues to celebrate the fact that he is and all Christians are an entirely new creation. Paul's saying that reconciliation with God, removal with conflict, removal of conflict, for him it's more than just a behavior swap. It's more than just, well, I've got a new religion. Paul is saying that this is a mysterious spiritual renewal. It's a spiritual rebirth. And many of us in this room have stories where I've heard you describe the change of your life as more than just a new hobby, more than just a new set of beliefs, more than just a new religious group. You would describe your transformation through faith as a recreation of who you are. Paul is teaching us that we are an entirely new recreation. A new creation of how we relate with our God because we are totally transformed. The old has died with Christ and the new self is here, newly created in brand new relationship with God. And God is now our loving father. Now, again, with this recreation comes, and this new life comes new hope, but also new purpose. So that's what we're going to get into next. With new creation comes new purpose. Paul continues to say, God has given people, his church, and us the ministry of reconciliation. Look at, let's look at verse 18 through 19. And all of this, this new creation, this grace, all of this is from God who has, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, to clarify, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul, you'll, he kind of tees up, because of all this, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he's like, hang on, remember, reconciliation is that Christ came not to hold trespasses against us, but to forgive us, to cleanse us. But remember, God's entrusted this message to us. So he kind of does... We've been given the message. Here's what the message is. Remember, we've been given the message. So what does that mean for us? One, we hold concretely, centrally. The gospel is central. The message is Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. What a message that is. What a, that, that message is so different than anything else we could make up. We often make up, oh, you want to be right with God? Here's your eight steps to holiness. Here's your brand new prayer and scripture patterns. Here's your how to live in community and how to be generous. Like we often strategize our way out of conflict. And here Jesus is saying, no, this is the message. I've died to forgive everyone. That's the message you carry. That is the message we carry, all of Life Church. That is the message we carry. And somehow he's given this to us. He's entrusted this to us. And I know for me, I kind of like, as soon as, right, the I'm God strategic plan, 
I hit the brakes, step back. What do you mean by that? Isn't that God's responsibility? Isn't that God's honor? Isn't it presumptuous for me to say that I am God's strategic plan? Think about this for a second. Why, why do we exist at all? Why do we, why does anything exist at all? The Hebrew creation of Genesis 1 tells us that God is generous. Why does everything exist? Because God's generous. He decided to make a world that he would love. Why? Did he need it? No. He wanted to be generous. He wanted to create things that were not there before. He wanted to create people that were not there before. So he creates everything out of this overflow of his love, the overflow of his generosity and his creativity. And then he places man and woman in the garden and he entrusts humanity with the stewardship and care of his whole planet. From day one, God was giving away responsibility and authority out of an overflow of love and creativity. If we could say that a different way, God does not hoard. That's just not who he is. God is a giving God. He's not holding anything back for himself. He is always, throughout the entire body of scripture, he is generous, he is empowering, he is giving. So here, when Paul writes that he's entrusting us with his ministry of reconciliation, this is just further evidence of the consistency of his character. God does not change. Since day one, he's been giving things away out of love and generosity, giving away responsibility and role and empowerment. And so the fact that we see this on day one, as well as in the New Testament after Jesus, is evidence of his consistency and therefore his trustworthiness. Now, when I was about seven to nine years old, just a quick illustration. Uh, my family moved into a, a newly constructed house. Uh, it was a dirt yard. Any of you guys have dirt yards? Represent. Now, I lived in Las Vegas, so when I say dirt yard, I mean dirt. Dirt yard. Like, not shrubs, not weeds. This is the middle of the desert. It is dirt. I remember uh, we'd get, like, really bad summer storms, and it would rain to the point that I could go out in the, in the yard, and I would, like, sink down, like, ankles deep, and I'd play in the mud, and I'd, I had really cool uh, Ninja Turtle action figures and I, I would lose them in the mud and then like weeks, if not years later, I'd like find them like buried under three inches of clay. <laughs> That's the kind of dirt I'm talking about. Now, you can imagine with that sort of project, there's all sorts of things you have to do, right? New, new projects you have to do. There's yard stuff, there's house stuff. Um, now, one couple things that I specifically remember is we helped my dad with a bunch of stuff around the house. We helped with an addition. We helped build a swing set. My dad and I built a dog house. Now, in all of that, um, I've just got some fun photos I would love to share with you. This is uh, the three Zychek children, my older brother, Taylor, myself, and then my sister helping my dad with stuff. This is me. I'm about seven years old, hanging out with my dad on a tractor, leveling out the yard, making the dirt less dirty so we can plant some stuff. Go ahead and show the next photo. This is my little sister, Juliana. Again, my dad just taking her in, showing her how to use the tractor. Go ahead and do the next photo. This is my older brother, Taylor. This is our front yard. We had just gotten some grass and they were doing some kind of like, uh, you know, accent pillars. So they're out there building that, putting some stone up there. Go ahead and do the next one. This is me and my dad building a doghouse. You can see that right behind us. There's one more photo. 
Now, it's slightly questionable to give an eight-year-old <laughs> a 16-penny nail gun, but that's up to you. Now, here's, here's my point with all of this. Oh, actually, just a fun point. Uh, my dad and I, that same dad, same me, uh, get, together, or get to get together in two more weeks to build a, a new swing set for the grandkids. Like, what a fun circle of life. Now, here's my point in all this. Leave that photo up for a second. Does my dad need me? No. Does my dad want me? Yes. As a loving and a generous father, he wanted to invite his children into his creativity. Even while he was building something for us. He wanted to invite me as an eight-year-old boy to receive and take in his skill set to receive and take in his presence. He wanted to empower me as an eight-year-old boy to grow into something more than I was in the moment. This is God, our Father. Did I know how to build a doghouse? No. (laughs) Should I have built a doghouse alone? No. Was I, though through the invitational partnership of my dad, able to contribute to building a doghouse? Yes. Can you and I reconcile the world? No. Should we build the church alone? No. But are we, through the invitational partnership of God our Father, through the empowerment and the direction of his spirit, are we able to contribute to a kingdom of reconciled saints here on earth? Would you join me in saying yes? Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ and God makes his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul here is taking on this vocation of being an ambassador for Christ as his one glory in life. This is his primary task, to be an ambassador for Christ imploring on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Paul is understanding that the glory of this position is intense. The glory of the position that we've been entrusted with, ambassadors for Christ, that is incredible. But also its opportunities for accomplishment are incredible. The responsibility is incredible, but the opportunity for accomplishment is incredible. The accomplishment for Paul of this role, when Paul does this role well, the accomplishment is the eternal reconciliation of humans to God in love. The accomplishment of this role is human beings waking up every single day knowing my dad loves me. Never waking up in conflict. Am I okay? Am I enough? But no, through Christ, I am a son or a daughter. Loved. That is the accomplishment of this role, is reconciling humans to God through Christ. And this vocation, if I may, is weighty. Who can carry this? 
many of us right now probably don't like the way this feels. We don't like the way it feels to have that responsibility. It probably feels like it is beyond us. And if we're honest, it is beyond us. But I've got two points of clarity. One, the best vocations and roles in our lives are weighty. The best roles we have are weighty. And at first, they are always uncomfortable. When I got married six years ago, it was weighty. It was ill-fitting. I did not know what it meant and I could not do it well. But by God's goodness and spirit, I have grown into no pats on the back. I think I'm a pretty good husband. I think the same for you. Think of the role of father. Many of you have raised children, father and mother. I've got a one-year-old. We celebrate his birthday in three weeks. Incredibly weighty. Can I carry the weight of raising this child? Do I know how to do it? No. Does it feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Is it chafing with my life rhythms? Yeah. Will I grow into it? By God's goodness, yes. Will I be a good father? By God's goodness, yes. Will it feel comfortable as I grow into it? By God's goodness, yes. Same for you. Whether it's a relationship or whether it's professional, whether you would say you are an engineer or a business owner or a caretaker, whether you're an elected official, whether you're an honorable employee, whatever it is, the best roles in life are weighty and uncomfortable until we grow into them. And we can choose to avoid these roles or we can choose to modify them to make them more comfortable or we can accept it with the love and trust of our father who's reconciled us. And we can trust him as we grow into it over the course of our lives. My second point is that, yes, in fact, this is beyond us. It is, flat out. This is why he has sent his spirit into the world to empower his people, to call and soften those who are not yet his people. He's actually out there right now, tilling up the ground, planting the seeds, softening the hearts, so that when we get there and his spirit prompts us, there is fruitfulness. So we're simply looking for where the Spirit is already working and reconciling. We're looking for where he's already going, and then we're stepping in like an eight-year-old with a nail gun to help our dad because he loves us. But the Spirit is often working on the edge of our comfort zone or way outside of our comfort zone. So again, we can either avoid the role modify the role to make it more comfortable or embrace it as a gift of our father that we will grow into. This leads us into chapter six. So that is the main body of the teaching for today, but I've got two more points in the broader context that Paul's getting at. Paul continues straight out of what we just read into chapter six. And I'm gonna hit a couple of verses, skip a chunk, and then hit the last couple of verses just for the sake of time. But Um, I'll I'll fill in real fast what's going on. Here's what he says in chapter six. I'm gonna actually go back to verse 21. For our sake, he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So working together with God then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. So behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. And then you'll see I put in brackets. He kind of goes on for about a a chapter, just talking about the manner and the fruit of his conduct in ministry, saying, look, I've put no obstacles. Look at my conduct. Look at what I've said. Look at the fruit of my ministry. And then he ends chapter six by saying this. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. There is a weighty responsibility of the gospel. The Corinthian church, these Corinthian Christ followers, according to Paul, had received the grace of God in vain. And it wasn't because of Paul, the ambassador. It wasn't because of the message or the conduct. It was entirely because they were restricted by their own affections. And Paul beseeches them, widen your hearts to the love of Christ. Paul's sober-minded here that it is possible to receive the gospel of Jesus in vain. If you'd like to learn more, come back July 2nd. We're teaching in Matthew again on Jesus' instruction on the parable of the sower. Paul's point and Jesus' point in Matthew 13 is that it is possible to receive the gospel with sincere joy without it penetrating the human heart and growing into either salvation or a transformed life. Our affections can restrict us as scary as this is, from opening our hearts to the gospel. They can restrict us from experiencing both its fullest joys, its truest salvation, and its greatest vocation. It is possible to be a half-hearted disciple. And the only words I can say in this moment that I think are fitting is to repeat Paul. Working with Christ, we appeal to you Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Open your hearts to his gospel. As we receive his gospel, if we do widen our hearts like Paul says, widen our hearts to the fullness of its love, the fullness of its good news, the fullness that all conflict has been removed, if we make that the single-hearted focus of our lives, it creates joy, But it also, to continue Paul's language, continues responsibility, weighty responsibility that we grow into. It's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. But through God's goodness, we grow into it and receive it as a mantle of joy. So going backwards into the beginning of chapter five, my point is that we receiving the gospel is a weighty responsibility for the sake of others. Paul says this in chapter five, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, I'm going to continue to explain some more, but I want to just unpack that real fast. Both the scriptures of the Bible, as well as our human reason, bears witness that there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of answering that there is a higher power who will hold each person accountable for what he has done, whether good or evil. And we, as Christ followers, who know the rest of chapter five, know 
None of us, if we're following Christ, land in that judgment seat being judged for ourselves. Through the grace of God and faith in Christ, we land in that judgment seat being judged according to the righteousness of Jesus gifted over us. That is what removes the conflict, right? It is not our good Christianness that makes us land at the judgment seat and be forgiven. It is that we land at the judgment seat and say, God, Jesus died in my place. I now have his righteousness over me. Thank you that I get to come home. That is the good news message of reconciliation. And Paul is saying, therefore, because we as Christians know the fear of the Lord, we know conflict with God, but we've been freed of it. We know it's joy and it's liberation, but we also know the reality of judgment. He says, therefore, let us persuade others also. The gospel reconciles us to God. The gospel promises to care for us, promises to protect us, and even death guarantee our resurrection and new life in Jesus. What sweet relief. Knowing this, we persuade others because we know the fear of the Lord. And a quick note on fear of the Lord. I've got a great quote by William Barclay because fear, fear of the Lord can turn us sideways real fast. I think this brings some clarity. William Barclay says this about fear of the Lord. The Old Testament is full of the thought of a cleansing fear. This doesn't describe the fear of a dog who waits for a whipping or of a cowed child. This fear is that which keeps even a thoughtless man from desecrating a holy place. It's that which keeps a man from doing the things which would break the heart of someone he loves. There is a cleansing fear without which a man cannot live the life that he ought. This is the fear of the Lord that we know. We don't cower before God for fear of judgment. We know the seriousness of God. We know his love as a father and we seek to do his will and to bring this rescue to the people around us. And then Paul continues this on the note of persuading others, being willing to do whatever it takes to persuade others. He continues and he addresses first the fact that he's being questioned by some people in Corinth. They're kind of questioning his motives. They're questioning the way he, he, um, what his credentials are. So first he says this, and then he talks about what he will do for others. First, he says, going backwards, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are, Corinthians, is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. I hope you have no questions about our motives or who we are. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but, we're giving, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. The Corinthians are boasting about outward appearance. Paul's saying, look, you know my way. Consider me also. Boast about this. And, and they're boasting about not what is in the heart. And then 13, he says this. Look, for if we are beside ourselves, if we're acting crazy, it's for God. But if we are in our right mind, if we're acting plain and simple and straightforward, it is for you. Paul's saying, God knows who I am, and I hope you know my sincerity. You know my legitimacy. Therefore, I will do whatever it takes. If I act crazy, it's because of my faith in God. If I act simple, it's to be clear for your sake. So you would receive the gospel message. And Paul's saying that he and we are citizens of the kingdom of God, living on foreign soil who will judge us according to their standards, but he and we are living on our king's mission. And he and we are committed to live for others. 
If we have to act crazy in faith, we'll do it. If we have to act clear and simple, we'll do it. We do all of this, Paul continues in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. We are confident in his love and we wake up living every day in his grace. We know the good judgment of God. We know we've been reconciled to him. And so let us persuade them also. Would you pray with me? Father, first, I recognize um, there are many of us who have saving faith in you who still struggle to receive your love. Uh, What comes to my mind is Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians 3 that his greatest prayer is that the saints would grow through the Spirit to know and comprehend the love of God. Its height, its depth, its, its width, its breadth. Father, you, you through Paul teach us that we need to grow our love. This happens through the Spirit. This isn't anything we need to condemn ourselves for. This is just a reality of growing into being children. We grow in our reception of your love and loving you back. Father, would you grow this in our hearts and then let that love control us as we move outward, not living for ourselves, but living for others. Pray this in the name of Jesus, your spirit in us. Amen. I'm going to step down and give you three minutes. Uh, There'll be a timer on the screen just for some individual reflection. Where does this get you excited? Where does it make you uncomfortable? Where do you want to look into it a little bit more? Three minutes, pray, journal, and then I'll come back up, lead us through some fast application. Uh, extra time on the timer I didn't realize was there. So if you'd tune back in, feel free to jot down. If you're like chasing something down, jot that down, get after it. <clears throat> now, when I read this part portion of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I kind of am left feeling, what next? And if I look through my own sermon notes, I kind of end going, well, what next? Like, great, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid. I'm a little bit excited. Now what? Sorry for leaving you there. <laughs> so here's, um, I've only got a couple minutes and this honestly could be a sermon series, but I hope to give you just a couple things that are light and easy. The burden of Jesus, right? It's a, a burden that is light. It's a yoke that's easy. But I also, just honestly, you're gonna have to do some work here. If, if this is getting you going, you're gonna have to do some work. This isn't something I can squeeze into five minutes, but I hope this helps. First, I wanna point us to our church's vision statement. It is this. We exist as a local body to saturate the in the Northwest and the nations with the good news of Jesus through the formation of wholehearted, right? Not half-hearted, wholehearted disciples in life-giving relationships so that every man, woman, and child that Jesus gives us to and sends us to is seen, known, loved, and gospeled well. So I want to um, give you some practicals. So go ahead and leave that up on the screen for a second. Um, The main things I want to point out is uh, the middle part, the formation of wholehearted disciples. If you are finding yourself in this minute convicted, I'm I'm kind of a half-hearted disciple, or I'm not even a disciple. Maybe I'm one or two steps down that road, but what next? My first encouragement is like lean into being discipled. More on that in a second. The second part is if you're eager to go and disciple others or share the message of reconciliation, this breaks it down really well. Is it a person? Step one. <laughs> and then see, know, love, and gospel well. There are people on the fringe of society, on the fringe of our gatherings. They are unseen. 
ask the Spirit to help you see people, specifically the people he's asking you and inviting you to work with. Right? You're not just walking around, every single person I meet, like, gospel, gospel. Spirit, who are you asking me to see? Who are you asking me to know? Get to know their story. We need to know their story in order to translate the gospel as good news to them. For some of us, we kind of believe the gospel is like a very joyful uh, legal proclamation. God has forgiven me all my sins. But for many other people, it's, I'm really not worried about my sins. I'm worried about my loneliness. I'm worried about the fact that I don't feel loved. And so if you tell someone who just wants to be loved, well, you're forgiven. That's not good news. They need to know you are forgiven, yes, but you're loved. You've not experienced love, but you're loved by God the Father. Can I tell you about that? So you need to know someone's story in order to translate the gospel well for them. Uh, and then see, no, love. This, uh, this actually isn't necessarily actional love. This is first just like try to love them genuinely in your own heart. Don't fake. Don't fake. Ask God to warm you to them in genuine love and then let that work itself out in the way you treat them. And then gospel well. Bring the gospel. See, no love, great. That's just being a good neighbor. Gospel. Enter into spiritual conversations. Bring the good news, the message of reconciliation that you have been entrusted with. Bring it to that person well. Develop the competency over time to do it well. So some practicals to do that. Flip almost all the way to the back, page 24, or excuse me, 26, page 30. On this page of our, our discipleship plan, so at the end of the workbook into the PDP, you'll see there are kind of three big things I want to, oh, I did that wrong, sorry, 28. Under the mission, go and multiply. Three things I want to point your attention to here. Very first one, it's going to ask you, who are the people that you, the neighborhoods, areas, culture, or people group that you want to live on mission toward? All that is, is who am I being called to live on mission toward? Who is it that I see? Who is it I'm being called to see? Maybe you already have a people group, a pocket of people you're passionate about. Maybe you already are passionate about students or children or people of a certain race or people in a certain socioeconomic um, class or people who have addiction. Maybe you already have that passion. Chase it down. See no love and gospel in. If you don't have that though, just consider this. For me, it is very compelling. When I think of gospel saturation, I like to envision myself as like one little water drop. And Jesus has kind of like flicked me out there. And it doesn't matter where I land, where I land, I want there to be gospel saturation. The people I'm around, my workplace, my neighborhood, the gym I go to, where, wherever I am, I'm just doing my best to see, know, love, and gospel. Asking the Spirit for direction. I'm not making up my own like agendas and timelines. I'm just trying to show up to saturate a little bit. But then if you get a bunch of little water droplets and put them all together, that's a pretty good like little splash, right? So that is an effective strategic plan of God is that you would be one water droplet where he's placed you. Uh, second thing on here, if you go a little bit down, you'll see reach one, two, three. This is our, as like church elders, this is our concrete and specific ask of you. I am asking you right now, will you do this? Here's what it is. Reach one. Choose one person that you will pray for, you will spend time with, and you will have spiritual conversations with and hope they meet Jesus. One. You don't have to like pick the whole neighborhood. Pick one neighbor, one coworker. Pray for them. Try to spend time with them. 
Be willing to have spiritual conversations. Two, invite, ask two people to pray with you for them. Ask two friends to pray for that one person to know Jesus. Three, commit to three invitations to that one person. Whether that's into spiritual conversation, hey, I'd love to hear more about your story. Can I buy you a beer? Invite them into spiritual conversation. Invite them into community. Whether that's Sundays, your gospel community, your DNA, a connect event that we have usually quarterly or monthly. Three invitations to anything. Into your life, into spiritual conversation. So that's reach one, two, three. And I'm asking you, would you be willing to do that? Choose one person who the Spirit has already placed in your mind and your path. Invite two people to pray for them with you. And then invite them three times into anything. And again, that can be really simple. It can be grabbing pizza. It can be going on a bike ride. But intend and even ask them, hey, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on God, on whatever. What kind of faith did you grow up with? Have spiritual conversations. And even if it's just as simple as, hey, I'd love to hear about how you've been doing this week in a really serious way, like in a sincere way. Can I, can I take you out? Engage in spiritual conversations. The third thing, so one, who are your people? Two, do the reach one, two, three. And then the third one, where it says mature discipleship, mature disciples make disciples, period. Mature disciples make disciples. Now, your question is, do you need to focus on being discipled or making disciples? Where are you at in your own maturity? If you realize that you need to be discipled, it's probably because you're realizing, like even right now, I don't totally understand the gospel or I'm just learning how to be a disciple or I've never actually made that decision. So just start where you're at. Remember, you are reconciled and loved by God and ask someone to disciple you. Ask someone to disciple you. If you need to disciple someone, you already have some experience, you've got some gospel fluency under your belt, your job is to ask, who can I disciple? It doesn't have to be inside this church. It could be the neighbor, right? That could be part of the invitation. Hey, you want to open up the scriptures with me? But just be willing to ask somebody, can I disciple you? Would that be life-giving and compelling for you? Would you be open to that? Remember, if you make a disciple, that disciple will mature and make disciples, and they will mature and make disciples. There are some resources on discipleship on the right-hand side, some questions that help you figure out who's my pocket of people, some, what do I do with learning about discipleship, some books on that. Uh, one book that is not on there is a book called Saturate by Jeff Vanderstelt. That's a great one about missional discipleship. And then the last couple minutes, here's how I want to just um, end today. Uh, there is on the very last page of your workbook, this circle. I just want to explain this really fast. When you think about maturing as a disciple, these are the ways that we as a church structure commit to and do formally. There's a bunch of other things you can do, but these are the things that we commit to and we do formally, and you are welcome to join us. You'll notice there's this introductory arrow of following Jesus. That's how you get into discipleship. You follow Jesus. You don't follow Trevor, you follow Jesus. No previous experience is needed for this. So this is simply everything in this upper quadrant is just coming and receiving the good news of Jesus. And as you choose to follow him, you move into community with his people. You'll see that red, that this is where discipleship is defined, strengthened, and empowered. This is our gospel communities, our cohorts, our developmental spaces. This is where we learn how to 
mature as disciples in life-giving relationships. And then that moves us into mission, becoming fishers of men and women. This is where we practice and learn how to live for others. We're going out both solo and with community. And then the cycle just repeats because we continue to grow and learn and find new corners. And we follow Jesus, live in community, go on mission, repeat. I'm going to end with two very simple encouragements that I hope are relieving. First is that if you are living single-heartedly for God's kingdom, you're going to feel like an outsider. If you're an ambassador in a foreign nation, you're going to feel like a foreigner. You're going to feel kind of weird. A simple encouragement is just be present to yourself. Allow the awkwardness. Be present to yourself. Be present to your anxiousness and the fear. Share it with God. Lean in. And in doing so, you'll be able to be present with others. Hear their real story. Not coming in with gospel manipulation, but coming in, seeing, knowing, loving a real person and bringing a helpful gospel to them. We can all handle awkward conversations. Second bit of encouragement is that we, as crazy as this is, represent God. When someone meets a Christian, they think, for better or worse, that's what God is like. So as we are learning to speak God's message, my encouragement is just like simply choose to do so with wisdom and gentleness and clarity. Look for open doors, plant very simple seeds, and live out of your current character. You don't need to be anyone else. You just need to be a reconciled child of God, living at peace with yourself and with genuine love for others. As you do this, his truth will be truthful and you will represent God attractively because God is attractive. God has sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but that it would be saved through him. He has sent his son because he so loved the world. Jesus is bearing a message of peace, not of conflict. His message is an appeal to wandering, estranged children to come home. That is his message. Jesus wants these people to wake up every day knowing they're not in conflict. He loves them. That is our motivating thought. I'm going to give you seven minutes to engage as a community. If we want to do this well, it doesn't have to go off into a silo, wrestle with our own stuff, and then stall out, right? So gather up with four or five people around you. If you got to move, you can. We're going to spend seven minutes. Just look at, if it's helpful, uh, on week eight or seven, whatever we're on, um, week seven, some of these questions on the side, you can look at those. If there's something in that PDP on the back you want to talk about, if you've got questions, ask those people. If you've got things you're nervous about, share it with those people. It will uh, be fruitful and it will help us grow into some of that responsibility. Uh, so you've got seven minutes on the screen. If you're super uncomfortable, that's fine. Grab some coffee, go to the bathroom. We'll see you in seven minutes. Thanks. You. If you're a band member, I'm sorry to cut your conversation short. Can I have the band up with me? We're going to take communion together and sing one final song for our gathering. Um, we, every week, take communion, and we take it very uh, importantly. Uh, we take it because we want the message of Jesus as our reconciler to be the core. It's really easy to kind of add on all the other things, which are often good, but we want to keep the core of the core. 
We've been given and entrusted the ministry of reconciliation, but the message is not come join our church. The message is Jesus has lived and died for all so that all might live. That is our message. That's what gets us up in the morning. That's what we have to bring to the world. So as we, um, during this next song, there's four communion tables, two on both sides. Uh, would you grab the elements? If, you are, if you've been reconciled to God through Jesus, or if you want to be, grab those. If you would like to learn more, uh, we've got a couple people who'll be by that, that prayer banner. Would love to talk to you after service. Um, Go ahead and uh, band, you guys are going to give us one final song. Would you stand, sing with them, gather the elements, and then we'll come back together, take communion, and send.